This is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, feeling very fortunate to have with me today Peter Golden, who is about to release his third novel. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for having me, Melissa. And I have written so many notes in the margins of this book, because this book, it is called Nothing is Forgotten. It's um, a Simon and Schuster, yes. and it is a genre bender. It is a coming-of-age story. It is a romance. It is a mystery. It is a detective-slash-crime story, but it is none of those, <laughs> and it raises some really important overarching questions about who we are as people and what is history. So I think we're going to launch in right from the start with a question. What was the seed for this? What what got you to think of this? Well, the Holocaust had been part of my life since I was a child. So I always knew, someone asked me that, and I always knew I was going to write a book about the Holocaust. I just didn't know what part of the Holocaust I was going to write about. So much of it's been done, and so much of it's been done by witnesses. I mean, how does one write about the Holocaust after night, after Elie Wiesel's Night, or some of the other books that have been done? I wanted to write about how people became aware of the Holocaust, and that doesn't really start in a large way in the United States until the 1960s. It starts with the trial of Eichmann in 1961, which was the whole purpose of trying him in the first place, was so that the world would become aware. It was really more about the survivor stories than about what Eichmann had done. So that was sort of the genesis of it. Also, uh, my family, uh, parts of my family had vanished in the Holocaust, which in some ways was more difficult for me, because you didn't really know what happened to them. They just disappeared. And that's an experience a lot of people had. There are no bodies. They just never heard from them again. And so I think a lot of those things uh, came along. And these characters had been bothering me for a while. I also, when I had to write the Russian novel in America, where life goes on so unterribly, and... I was always very curious about that, and I felt I wanted to recreate the difference between life in the Soviet Union and life in the United States. And, of course, uh, we see how this is playing out currently with Putin and the United States, because growing up, while I knew a lot about World War II, everyone skipped the Russian part. They didn't teach us about the Russian part. So I wanted to write about that as well, the impact that it had on the people living Yes. There. In fact, you have your character who lives in a suburban New Jersey <laughs> place. Talk about how he didn't, he didn't learn about that in high school, well, about the Russian. Yeah. And so I wondered, are, where are you? Are you from New Jersey? Yeah, I grew up. The so town you, is, I grew up. The town I'm writing about is where I grew up. Yeah. Ah, so that's, so when you thought of this, because I also think the novel, there have been a lot of novels lately. Um, looking at World War II in different ways. But what this does with a layer of the 1960s, which is the current setting that we start with, as you say, it's a time of discovery in the American consciousness. But it's also, right now, in our current political state, is a reigniting of the Cold War. And all those years in between, you know, the Russia that <laughs> is seen as fearsome here is starting to like reoccur, I think, in the American consciousness. Um, 
almost like a flashback, and then you've created it here. It's another kind of layer that's current when you're you're back in time in two layers in this novel. There's the 1960s setting where your figures primarily are, but their flashbacks and what they're trying to unearth are in the 1940s or even a little earlier. And then you have on top of that this layer of where we are now and how that history... um, not that, I mean, history repeats itself is too simple, but history can inform itself. Well, I and think I think it does. I, I think when I talk to people about Russia and the World War II, I, I just tell them various mm-hmm. numbers. For example, they lost more people in six weeks than we lost in three and a half years. Germany invaded Russia in June of 1941. At the end of the war... 80% of all males born in 1923 of Russian males were dead. That means they were 17 and 18 years old when the Germans invaded. 80% of them were gone. If you remember when we were growing up, all the pictures you saw of Russian women doing all of these things that women didn't mainly do here, doctors, all kinds mm-hmm. of, in part that went on because so many men were dead. The losses they experienced are beyond imagining. No one, I guess if you could unearth, let's say, a Native American who had his village destroyed, or perhaps someone who was living in Atlanta when Sherman came through. But that happened to an entire country that was about 15% of the Earth's surface. It's, it's remarkable what they did. They pulled up gravestones and used them to pave roads. So you couldn't even go back, and if you ever um, go to Cape Cod in the summer, you'll see people in these old cemeteries clearly looking up family names, trying mm-hmm. to do family trees. They used those for paving stones. They completely annihilated, and that was Hitler's plan. It was a war of annihilation. Completely annihilated all parts of this country. And so when you look at a Putin today and you look at the expansion of NATO and all of these things, you can understand why he comes after our elections because we're going after his borders. Mm-hmm. And nothing is more sacred to the Russian people than their borders because there's, because they live with this in a way that we don't. Well, one of the themes in your book, and it's put in a quote <laughs> that a character finds in searching for his grandmother's past, and that is, um, God writes our history in vanishing ink, and then it unravels where that quote came from. But you yourself, as we were leading into this, talked about how your relatives had vanished. And it seems like also what you've just been saying about the Nazis' intent to have vanish an entire race. Um, The book is more subtle than I'm making it sound because it, um, it has you think about one of the characters, and maybe I should let you kind of give a sketch of the plot so I don't give away more than you think is appropriate, but one of the characters, a young um, Russian woman who was orphaned because of the Nazis and is looking for her records, can't find them. And she says, you know, it wasn't enough for the Germans to say they were going to kill us. They had to say we didn't exist. So there's that kind of vanishing. But there's also the kind of vanishing that happens, I think, often in America, because we're not aware so much as some other countries of layers of our ancestors and histories. And this boy that you present us with in the very opening, you know, passage says, no, he doesn't know his history. He likes rock and roll. And it becomes really his journey to, to find that. Yeah. I think, um, 
what happened was, you see it with Eisenhower. When Eisenhower sits down to write his memoirs after World War II, he almost completely excludes the Russians from them. And he felt bad about doing it because he was very fond of um, the Russian military leader. Um, but he saw that we were going to be in a war with these people, so there was no reason to give them all this credit. But later on, he said publicly, if it hadn't been for the Rush, the Red Army, we would not have been able to land at Normandy. We were taught none of that stuff. We were, t- I mean, and I was a World War II fanatic as a child because of an uncle who served in the war and a, a lot that I knew about the war. I knew an awful lot for a kid about that war. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't learn about it in school. I took a modern history course. We studied World War II. They didn't talk too much other than they were on our side briefly. But I had no idea of what they suffered. Um, so I was very curious about that. The other thing that... I found fascinating was reading the oral histories of Soviet baby boomers who were absolutely enthralled with rock and roll um, and took great risks to listen to it. Yeah, and, and you have one character who literally risks his life right. for rock and roll. He's making records, see, what they call rock on bones. They, they recorded them on old x-rays. And is that vi- true? Yes, yeah. they didn't have vinyl. Uh-huh. Um, so they used old x-rays to record these, and the KGB went after them, and, and they smuggled albums in. They used shortwave radios to try and pick up other, uh, other radio stations. It's very interesting. If you go on YouTube and look at McCartney playing Red Square, and you go through the crowd, and you'll see people that are clearly were teenagers when the Beatles were the Beatles, and he's playing back in the USSR. They know all the lyrics in English. They're all singing with him. And Putin himself has talked about collecting these records. And uh, interesting enough, Gorbachev was an Elvis fan. But Putin was a, a Beatles fan. So they, even they had their different generations there as well. And these things were all illegal. The book Exodus is also mentioned there, the Leon Uris novel about the founding of the Jewish state. You go to prison if you got caught with that book. And they copied it by hand into Russian. They translated it, and they passed it around. And if you got many people, you got sent to prison for importing blue jeans. You could get in a lot of trouble, and they did all of this As stuff. one of your characters does. So let's look at it, how this seed germinated. You said you had in your mind, you knew you'd write about the Holocaust, you wanted to write about the American discovery of it. Did you develop the characters first? Did you develop the plot first? I mean, how how did you build this? I knew there would be some smuggling because I was very curious about that. I knew that from another book I wrote about the Cold War. I wrote a history of the Cold War and the Soviet Jury Movement many years ago. So I knew about smuggling because I had read about that. So I wanted a smuggler. And you got Der Schmuggler. Der Schmuggler. <laughs> and I wanted a smuggler. And then I wanted a boy who grew up with a Russian grandmother. And then I needed a girl. And then um, there is another very famous case of the Mossad hunting a German war criminal. One of the fascinating things I learned, I didn't know this before I started the book, but that in the mid-60s, they were trying under state law many Nazi war criminals in Germany. And they tried them under state statutes of murder. There was no law to try them under. So the people in Germany got sick and tired of these. They thought they were being blamed for something they didn't really do. So they decided to draft a law that would exempt any German citizen 
from committing war crimes between 1933 and 1945. And they actually voted on that in March of 1965, the Bundestag. For some time before they voted, it looked like it was going to pass. And the way the story goes is that the Mossad found one of these war criminals in South America. They shot him. They put him in a trunk with a note that said, um, there are those of us who still believe in justice and will continue to pursue it. In other words, what they were saying is, if you don't continue to try these people, we're going to hunt them down. Well, that's one of the themes of your book, because your main character ends up bludgeoning someone to death. (laughs) And, um, you know, he justifies it because the girl, as you say, that you created would have been killed without that. But all the way through, there's the question of, and you you highlighted throughout the book of you know when is killing just and right. how how is it that as a society we we put our history and line it up with justice there's one just stunning scene where your main character is a dachau and the mayor is kind of holding forth on how we can't blame all german people for a few madmen and um almost saying it's a shame to have this museum, this, you know, commemoration. And um, it's something, even in our paper we've been dealing with here, there was um, a group of people that came from Shibuta, Mississippi, where there were a lot of hangings and lynchings. And there's now going to be a, um, not just a monument, but like a museum to lynchings being built. And it's just the idea of what do you do with your history? Can you bury it and does it come up again? Or do you attribute it to a time and place and leave it, as the Dachau mayor is trying to suggest? And your book. Well, that's a true story, actually. Um, that's interesting that you would focus on that story. That's the story that enabled me to go to Germany. I, I was, had really mixed feelings about going there, and I had a, a few different ways about how I was going to go. I was going to do it all in a day. But I couldn't get the work. Tell me about your mixed feelings. Well, I didn't want to go there. I mean, my family died there. I have very so I, I was raised. And I actually, there are going to be a series of posts I'm going to do um, as the book, we get closer to publishing the book, about my feelings about Germany and going there and actually being in Germany, particularly in Munich, of all places, which is the birthplace of Nazism. Um, I interviewed someone who worked at Radio Liberty in this book, I call it Four Freedoms Radio, but it's the story about radio liberty and broadcasting rock and roll into the Soviet Union. But I interviewed a guy who worked there at the same time, and he's the one who told me the story, I don't know if it was the mayor or the town councilman, about their protesting this memorial at Dachau. And the thing he said to him was, if you build a memorial here when somebody hears the word Dachau, They'll never think of anything but a concentration camp. And I started to laugh. I, I thought, you so mean... You were Michael. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I said, you mean if you put a brewery there, people would think of Dachau as the name of a beer. That's exactly what I said to him. Yeah. And the guy said, yeah, well, that was what he seemed to suggest. And what I realized when I heard that was that even 20 years after the war, the people that were there, and they knew these people were being murdered at Dachau, you, you, the, the prisoners worked in the town. And they had a, had a crematoria there. They clearly knew um, that they didn't understand 
that this was going to become synonymous with unspeakable evil. So much so that if you call someone a Nazi in the news today, if you're having a political argument, he better really be a Nazi because people take great offense at using that word to just describe someone you don't like. Mm -hmm. And they have become the word Hitler and Himmler and Goebbels. These are are the most unspeakable people who have ever lived in our minds, and as is the word Nazi. So when I... When I heard that, I was able to go, and I said, I need to go and see this. The other issue, of course, is, is the Holocaust just a story about victims? Isn't it also a story about perpetrators? And the question always became, for me, as I was writing this book, what would I have done? In other words, everybody's so quick to think, being in that situation, if people, let's say, in this case, the Jews came running to your house, are going to take me away, hide me. Who says yes and who says No. What we do know is most people would say, no, I'm frightened. Um, soldiers in the field shooting people, do you not do it? There were many German soldiers that didn't. They were euthanized for not doing it. Um, but many of them did. They just went along with the crowd. So these moral questions become a lot murkier for a novelist because a novelist has to sort of function the way um, human beings feel and behave. It's much easier to give a speech It's much easier to say, oh, I'm sure I would be um, so wonderful in this situation. It's like this. When people tell you that they were were someone else in a past life, they never say things like, I worked at the post office, I worked at the (laughs) bank. They were always like a king of some country or the queen of some country, or they were doing something wonderful. So in our imaginations, we're all fine. So I felt I had to go to Germany. And what's so interesting is Munich was bombed something like 70 times during the war. They didn't bomb any of the places that the Nazi party started. In fact, the restaurant where they ate every day as they were getting this party is still there. They changed the name of it. But you can still go sit. There's the room there where Hitler sat. Now, they don't mark it with plaques, but this whole infrastructure that was there, the beer halls, the, um, the houses where the meetings were held, where the SS was formed, it's all there. You can walk it, which I did. So... That, I found, was very helpful in terms of doing the novel. It was sort of like the Greenwich Village of Munich, which is where this started. Well, you did you travel to all the places? The novel is in partly in Russia, partly in Paris, partly in Munich, partly in New Jersey, partly in Georgia, partly in California. The only place <laughs> I didn't go yeah. was Rostov, and I would have gone yeah. to Rostov. In, in Russia, but that's where all the fighting is right now. Mm. And that when I was and that and when I was particularly bad when I was going to go there, I wanted to go to see Rostov. Um, there are a lot of pictures about it, but one of the things, and I should mention this because you, you brought it up earlier. I read a, an oral history of a Ukrainian woman who talked about throwing bread over a fence to these Jews that were behind a fence in the Ukraine. I couldn't place where she was. I couldn't find what she was talking about. And I had a lot of research and I had the internet. I called one of the world's experts on this area and this time. He's at University of Michigan. I asked him about this. And he said the following. He said, unfortunately, there is so much we still don't know. And I thought, because these people were all killed. And when he said that, this is very fertile ground for a novelist, but it's, to me it was also stunning in that 
the Holocaust has been studied and studied and studied. Now we have the Soviet archives that are being opened up, which is a whole new fertile ground. But there are still these places that no one actually knows what happened, and there were no survivors to tell them. And that's true about that Rostov. Vanishing Ink, yeah. yeah. Vanishing but ink. that's a different, your novel doesn't look at it simply. There are different kinds of Vanishing Ink, and also doesn't look at simply this point you were just making about the morality of what, you know, what would I do in that situation? Because you have that character whose name I, <laughs> he chews on a pencil, the CIA. You're the bookkeeper. Yeah, they call him the bookkeeper. bookkeeper. And he says, you know, you look at these pictures of the Nazis running these camps, and you look at their faces, and this other CIA agent, the one that ran the radio station, he says is on a higher moral ground than I am. You portray him as like a minister's son, and he really thought that, you know, right right would be done. And the other guy says, what what would we do if we had Hitler? And it, you don't make it simple in the book. You don't make it... It's not a simple question. Right. No, I'm saying yeah. that's that's a nice part. Well, you have you. different viewpoints all <laughs> coalescing. To me, the single most powerful chapter in the entire book... Um, you should read the whole book, by the way. Don't just read this powerful chapter. I read the whole book. I'm teasing. Oh, yes. It's, <laughs> I don't know how to say the woman's name. Basha? Basha. Yeah. It's her, it's her recollection of what happened. Yeah. yeah. It's told in first person. It's graphic. She's with um, the lead figure's grandmother in their youth, two young children in tow, and just recollecting day by day what happens in Russia as the Nazis come in and as they flee and where they end up and what they do and how they fight. And it's just powerful. Well, thank you. Where did that come from? Um, she, she's one of those surprises, Basha. I loved her. I just adored her. I don't know where she came from. Um, I think there was a kind of cynicism and a, about her and a kind of a hurt that I felt very close to, so I don't know if that comes from me. I think that um, there was a kind of anger about her that was so defensive in terms of what had happened to her life. Um, And also I admired her courage because she's trying to make the best out of a life that most of us think of as unthinkable. And that is unthinkable. But it was not uncommon for people in her situation that when the Germans, the Germans didn't just get to Rostov once, they got there twice. They went, they left, and they came back. Um, So it's hard to say where she came, but the bookkeeper is easier because the bookkeeper is closer to the way I think about things. And one of the things he says, and sometimes when you write a novel, one of the most um, miraculous things about it is you write something you don't consciously think of but you think, you know, I really believe that. That's the reason. And that's the reason sometimes you write these novels. And it's when he says, look at the faces of the perpetrators. Right. That's what they I was scare about. people more than the victims because, they, because people know I've hated that much. I've been that angry. Could I, if I were given permission, could I behave that way? And... You, history teaches us that people given permission to do terrible things often do terrible things. So I found him to be sort of the, he's sort of real, real politic. He's the voice of, of how um, 
politics has developed in the second half of the 20th, and, and history has developed in the second half of the 20th century. Also, the moral compromises we made by bringing, we brought people to this country who worked for the Nazis that probably should have been hung at Nuremberg. I mean, starting with Werner von Braun, who was an SS colonel who used slave labor to build those rockets, the purpose of which, as he knew, was to be launched against civilians. That, that was the purpose of those rockets. They had no military use. They were to terrify and to kill people in England. And by all rights, um, he should have been hung. But there was a race for him and his 300 pals. I mean, that's, that was our number one priority when we got into Germany, was to get him. It was Stalin's priority, too. He was livid when we got him, and, and the Russians didn't. He was really very angry about it because he knew the advantage we would now have with our rocketry program, having these people. So, Yeah, and the mayor of Dachau in that speech or retort also points out the United States didn't accept Jews when they knew that they right. needed to go. But um, on this difference between the United States and Russia, it's fascinating how you you play it out between two characters. There's a woman, do you say her name, Yuli? Is that how you say her name? Yes. Okay. And she, of course, falls in love with our New Jersey boy. That's Misha, or Michael. Michael, yeah. He's, he's christened one way and called in school Michael Daniels, but when he becomes a disc jockey, he's the mad Russian, and he uses his Russian name. But he, and anyway... She is constantly commenting on how Americans, for instance, are so optimistic. They don't have the shadow of history over them. And uh, you get a real sense in those two about they're very much in love, and it's a, it's a lovely kind of thread through ugliness in the novel because they're falling in love in the midst of discovering all the most horrible things you can find out about humankind um and then you know they're having kisses in the snow and it's it's really a kind of a, a lovely counterpoint thank you I, I i do remember um going to los angeles our sons moved to los angeles so we were out oh has he? yeah so oh. we were out visiting him and there is a Bob's Big Boy in Burbank, which is actually on the National Register of Architecture. It's that googie architecture, that sort of space age architecture. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it was built in 46 or 47. And it's a place for milkshakes and hamburgers and the rest and hot fudge sundaes. And I had a lot of pictures of it from the mid-1960s. And it would look just like you would imagine. <laughs> Teenagers in surfer shirts and, just, and families coming from Disneyland. And I ate there with my wife when we were there. And I'm sitting there looking out and I'm thinking, what would this young woman think sitting here? What could she possibly think? Because uh, they're sitting there, what would she think? And she'd look around at the people and even even now... Everyone is very sort of wrapped up with their families, and there are a lot of young people, boyfriends and girlfriends. And um, what would she think? And finally, he, she says, everybody looks so happy here. He said, well, no one ever came here and killed 25 million people. Um, and to some degree, she loses sight of that. I think at one point, she wants to see the Hollywood sign. She's obsessed with seeing this. Yeah, she had a postcard her, of it in her little... <laughs> yeah, a postcard of the Hollywood sign, and yeah. she's obsessed with the Beach Boys. And, and so Malibu and um, these were um, these were totems in that society. They were very much moved by these by these things. And so she was. So why did you have her disappear at the end? 
Well, you, you know, I can't tell you that because I got to write another book. Oh, is that why? Yeah, but okay. the, but <laughs> the, the point the point is that she's afraid. And we won't tell exactly what happens, but one of the things that has always interested me, and I did a little bit of it in this book, and I was that intelligence services are the ultimate expression of the soul of a nation. In other words. The CIA, the KGB, all of the Stasi, all of these people, if you want to know about a nation, you look at at these people. And in many ways, they're very similar. And the fact is, if an intelligence officer is told to go up on a hill and save everybody in the village because that's in the best interest of his country, that's what the intelligence officer will do. And if the intelligence officer is told to call on an airstrike and kill everyone in in that village because that's in the best interest of this country, that's what that officer will do. And so one of the things I was very interested in was this pursuit of national interest. When do they stop? And so there's a question of with her is how much danger she's going to continue to be in given what's happened in the novel. And I think that she wants to protect Misha from this. Now, how that works out may well be the subject of the next book, but... Oh, so there's going to be a sequel. Well, I, I, I'm not done with these characters, I don't think yet. I, I, I don't... Wouldn't, especially not with her. She's... Um, there's too many possibilities with her having come from that world to live in this world. I have felt for some time that we have the problem with not knowing history. And we don't... People don't know history any longer is that you lose perspective on your modern life. And one of the things, I mean, I'm grateful for that I had grandparents that came from Europe and that I had parents that grew up during the Depression, is they didn't delude themselves about when things were bad and when things were good. They had a real perspective on the difference between bad and good. Starving was bad. War was bad. Children going off to war was bad. Um, World wars were really bad. Holocausts, terrible. They had a, they had a, a view of the world um, and, and I think that it was very helpful. And so to some degree, what I'm trying to do through Misha and through Yuli is give each other a view of these two countries. I mean, if, you, if there is a greater waste of energy in my lifetime, it has been this, the Cold War. I mean, how many Russians do you hate? I mean, how many people can say, oh, I really met a Russian, I really hate the Russian. You know, take, and I, I use this as an example. After World War I, Germans underwent terrible treatment in this country. Beatings, all kinds of things. Now, it was wrong, but it was in the ballpark in the sense that they just had this terrible war with Germany. What, 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 what Russians don't we like? I mean, people, they've been here. They, this, this competition between governments, it's, it's a very small number of people that seem to be keeping this war alive because, quite frankly... I haven't met that many Russians that hate Americans. In fact, quite the opposite. So that was another part of it. So that's another thing that interests me about the blending of their cultures, also the pervasiveness of Western culture. Rock and roll, um, that whole 60s thing, the movies, the music, um, the goods that went along with it, the way of dressing, um, the way women acted, um, all of these things were enormously influential. I understand why the Kremlin didn't like it, but I certainly understand why the women, the young women in the Soviet Union did. 
And so there was a kind of joyousness. Uh, people have hypothesized that one of the reasons the Beatles struck such a chord with American youth was that kids were really sort of blue by all of the because of all of their parents around them suffering so with Kennedy, John Kennedy being assassinated, that adults were really very upset about this, that many of them could relate to him. He was very young. And there was a kind of a depression in the country, a kind of like what happened. And all of a, lot, and all of a sudden, they come along these four joyous kids bouncing around on Ed Sullivan, singing this wonderful music. And people just sort of exploded with that joy. Well, I think something even uh, was analogous in the Soviet Union. Except they, they were dealing with much harsher stuff. They had had the end of Stalin. They had had the Second World War. In 1965, if you're in that book, you'll, there were still places all over Germany where there was still rubble from the 20 years after the war. Now, that's the Germans who are very good at doing these kinds of things. The Russians, who are not nearly as good as the Germans in terms of organizing civil um, works and the rest, Imagine what the country looked like. They were busy building memorials there 20 years after the war. They still haven't located all of the dead. Um, and they certainly hadn't 20 years after the war. They're still counting. The number used to be 20 million. We're at 26 million now. Some say more. So I wanted to, I wanted to show people that. I wanted, and so I wanted to recreate that, I think. You did. <laughs> and you threw in, like, you know, just Lanyap, you threw in Picasso. And well, you that, threw in a few, like, well, little surprises along the I way. I was interested in his grandmother's um, past. I was also interested, quite frankly, in one of, you said, did you go to that place? One of the places I went to was Nice. Yeah. And in Nice, there is a Chagall museum. And you go and you look at Chagall painting these Bible stories. And... He's painting these. He lives through this, Chagall. He lives through these years. And you, and you have to think, what was this man thinking? And that was the argument that he has with the other artists in the book who, who felt, what is he painting these stories for? Why is he painting Bible stories, given what's going on in the world? So I was very curious about that. Also, Picasso painted Auschwitz. And Picasso, of course, did Guernica. Yeah. And so... I was very interested in his perceptions of this. Um, and so that's why he's also... Nice, that was the other thing I discovered in Nice, was that cemetery. I didn't know. I went to Nice because I knew Picasso was going to be in the book. And, and I wasn't sure if Matisse was going to be, but I was sure Picasso was going to be. In the process of going to Nice, I found that cemetery where they brought back the remains from Auschwitz. I didn't know it was there. And so that changed the whole complexion of the book. Well, I won't give it away, but that's okay. the ending of the book. It yes. ends there. So unfortunately, we're way over our time, and I feel like I still have so many questions I wanted to ask, but do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like people to know about this book, why they should read it, whatever you want to end with? I don't know. I hope they read it, but if they're interested in 20th century history, and what happened in the 20th century sort of reorganized the world and has an enormous impact on now. It's interesting. It's interesting as history. And if you like a good story, I think it's a good story. So that would be another reason to read it. But thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Well, thank you for coming.